0: As you're taking your seats, I would encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles, whatever version you might have with you this morning, to uh, Luke chapter 2. Our scripture reading is going to be verses 1 through 20. Uh, this is the story that Luke has recorded concerning the, uh, the time when Christ's uh, birth actually happens. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Let's pray. Our God and Father, uh, once again, we thank you for this familiar passage, but this very precious passage to us who believe. We thank you for the gospel stories, and we thank you for revealing this to us, uh, that we might have knowledge of your Son, our Savior. And we would pray as we consider these familiar words that, Not familiarity, but once again, the depth of your truth would be that which would strike us. That we would be reminded of what Christmas Day is all about, how best to understand it, and then why we should celebrate it. We would commit this to you, praying for your grace and your mercy as you would teach us and instruct us from the word and spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I begin this morning with John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want us to keep that in mind as we move through this message this morning. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I see the truth of this in all of the attempts to remove the meaning and presence of Christmas during this season within our culture, within Western Europe, within Western civilization. For instance, uh, take the politically correct term, happy holidays. That phrase can't eliminate its own history. The word holiday comes from the earlier holy day, specifically the holy days celebrated by the Christian church in Europe. Of course, today's contemporary version of Merriam-Webster Online the British version, doesn't really want you to see this connection, nor its origin in Christianity. It gives its first definition, correctly enough, holiday as holy day. But then it gives an example of this phrase and what it means. Quote, an important Muslim holiday, unquote. And I laugh. I laugh far more than I'm vexed. By this dissimulation and lack of faithfulness to history. Because in all of the modern and contemporary efforts to undercut and to deny the presence of Christianity and how Christianity actually civilized Western Europe, there remains one historical marker that so far hasn't been eliminated. And that's the historical timeline. All of human history is divided into the time before Christ came, and all of the days since. Of course, some four decades ago, scholars began to change B.C. before Christ to B.C.E., before the Common Era. And they changed A.D., Anno Domini, the Latin phrase for in the year of our Lord, to C.E., Common Era. But that doesn't erase the fact that Christmas Day, is the day that splits human history into two eras. Now, clearly, this is something that God has done in his providential control over history. He has made the earthly life of his son the most important life in all of human history, and he has caused the birth of his son to be the dividing point in all of human history. And that's enough for me to say that we as Christians must never give up celebrating Christmas Day. Even if we don't know the exact day when it happened, we know that the day did happen. All of human history knows that this day has happened, and God has made that so. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But further. Several chapters in the Gospels are centered around this day, the day of Christ's birth. Many Old Testament prophecies point to this day. But what I think we should find most significant is the record of how God himself celebrated this day in human history. And that is what Luke is giving to us in these 20 verses because it is truly about how God celebrated the birth of his son. Now, in these 20 verses, the word glory is at the center of that celebration. It really is the theme. And the story, as Luke has written it, displays how the glory of God shows up in the circumstances and the manner in the response to the birth of Christ. We should take this as our guide to how we celebrate and keep Christmas in a way that honors God we should see that the glory of God is displayed in the manner of Christ's birth, in the very manner in which Jesus is born, and therefore to celebrate this birth is to celebrate the glory of God. So the burden of what I really want to say this morning is simply this. The glory of God is displayed in the manner of the birth of his son, the Messiah. To celebrate this birth, is to celebrate the glory of God. And Luke really presents it in a way that we can look at from three perspectives. The glory of God, it shows up in its display of radiance, a fear-inspiring radiance. The glory of God shows up in all the circumstances of history surrounding the birth of Christ, how it reveals itself in through the history of that particular time. And the glory of God shows up in what we might call a resonating response by those who saw and experienced it most directly. So the basic three point map of what I want to say this morning would be the radiance of God's glory, the revelation of God's glory, the resonation, the resonance of God's glory. In order to show us that to celebrate the birth of Christ is really to celebrate the glory of God. Now, if we look at verses 8 and 9, we see here that um, the radiance of God's glory is fully displayed. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they they were filled with great fear. There's three things going on here. First, the radiance of God, of his glory, that comes with the angel, doesn't belong to the angel, but it belongs to God alone. It's the glory of the Lord. But because this angel has been sent from the presence of God, it's as though the angel could not help but shine forth with God's glory. We can think of this in terms of the experience of Moses back in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, Moses has this prayer. He has this request of God. Show me your glory. Our apologies due to technical difficulties. 48 seconds were lost at this point in the sermon. That the Israelites actually fled from Moses. And Moses then had to put a veil over his face. So imagine a holy angel coming from the presence of God, not hidden at all from the glory of God and how that coming from the presence of God would display God's glory shining all around brilliantly radiating the glory of God and then imagine the response of the shepherds that radiance produced fear that's how it was experienced by the shepherds they were filled with deep fear they were deeply terrified We ought not ever to forget how it said in the King James Version. They were sore afraid. The fear evoked by God's glory was extraordinarily great, but that's appropriate. Even though the angel says, fear not, the angel was not saying, well, shepherds, fear is an inappropriate reaction to the radiance of God's glory. It's wrong for you to fear. No. The angel is rather granting them permission to fear no more because God's intention is very good for them. God has good news of great joy to bring to them for all mankind. For all of us who love Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, this experience of the shepherd in light of the angel's radiation of the glory of God and the angels' response of fear not. I, I think there's no better explanation in all of theology that is better than what we read in the conversation of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver with Lucy and Susan in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. So, Lucy asks of Mr. Beaver, is is he a man? Sternly, Mr. Beaver responds, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he... Quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is how the angel's message grants to the shepherds permission not to fear. The glory of God has appeared with God's good intent behind it. It's a radiant event and appearance. It's a fearful happening. It rightly evokes awe and even terror. But what lies behind God's glory appearing is God's good intent because God has good news of great joy to bring to the shepherds, to all mankind. Because that day in the city of David, there was born to them a Savior, Christ the Lord. There's a third connection we need to make between God's glory and the radiance of it. It's really what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We are told that Christ, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So even as the shepherds would go and see the Christ child in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, although, quote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, they would actually behold in the manger, in the Christ child, the very radiance of God's glory. And that tells us to celebrate this birth is truly to celebrate the glory of God. And then we look at all the circumstances of the actual history surrounding the birth of Christ. We will see further that the glory of God reveals itself in several aspects of his providential design. His guiding providence over everything that happens in human history. And that design of God's providence and what it reveals shows up in the language of verses 10 and 11. So the angel says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are several key terms in what the angel says that already had common usage, very significant common usage within the Roman Empire. So when the angel says that this message from God is, quote, good news, that's one Greek word normally translated in the rest of the New Testament as gospel. But this, quote, good news language was already used within the Roman Empire for birthday celebrations of Roman deities, pagan deities, as well as celebrations in the worship of the Roman emperors, especially at their birthdays. These events were announced publicly as good news, So when the shepherds heard this and the angel applied it to Christ, this was most significant. The angel is saying, in effect, that this birth ranks with the most important kind of births that are celebrated within the Roman Empire. But think about how 60 years later, when Luke writes his gospel account of Christ and publishes it, and how then it's circulated within the Roman Empire, consider how the message of this good news must have sounded to Roman citizens especially. But there's more. Both of the titles, Savior and Lord, applied by the angel to Jesus, were likewise already applied to the Caesars. Caesar Augustus, when Jesus was born, had already been celebrated as Savior and Lord and now this baby will bear this title. Then thirdly the term peace spoken by the angelic chorus in verse 14. Peace was also a part of the, of the glory of the Roman Caesars. They claimed there was already peace on earth because the Roman Empire had established the Pax Romana the great peace of the Roman Empire. It was said during the days of Caesar Augustus that there was no armed conflict happening anywhere within the boundaries of his empire. So we have these highly charged political terms in the message of the angel, good news, Savior and Lord, peace on earth. The point cannot be missed. The angel's message was a challenge to the glory of Caesar in order to properly reveal and exalt the glory of God. And then there's a further great contrast, though, in terms of this revelation of glory. For the Roman Caesars, all of this language necessarily was used during their public extravaganzas and celebrations. Births and birthdays had to have public celebrations. It was the public nature That gave these events their glory. No audience, no glory. Now here we see a great contrast. The Savior, Christ the Lord comes to the earth during the night and His birth has no real public human audience. There are no calls for, calls for celebration among the people of the earth. Their Savior, their King, their Lord has come, but that coming is so hidden and so humble. There's no place for this newborn king to lay his head except a feeding trough, a manger, and to further heighten that contrast. In all of the Roman affairs, the high and the mighty would be specially invited. But God doesn't invite the high and the mighty. Rather, to the birth of his son, God the Father invites the lowliest segment of Jewish society, humble servants, to behold the birth of, Of his son, the Christ. Exactly illustrating the theme that the Apostle Paul has taught us that God has chosen the weak and the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. In the coming of Christ, there is revealed a different kind of glory. It is a contrast between the outward, worldly kind of glory and a hidden, heavenly glory. Hidden glory, the hidden glory of God's sovereignty over all the events and circumstances of human history. Again, to see the birth of Christ within these providences and to celebrate this birth in light of these providences is to celebrate the glory of God. And then lastly, God's glory shows up in terms of what we might call a resonating response by those who saw it and experienced it most directly. In the first place, of course, this is the angelic heavenly host in verses 13 and 14. But then secondly, we see this in the shepherds in verse 20. So the angelic multitude suddenly appear with the first messenger angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. These are citizens of heaven. They are the holy angels who dwell in the very presence of God. They have always experienced God in all of God's glory. And now they are responding to this thing that God has done. The incarnation of God, the Son. His birth into the world, into the human race. And they are responding with praising and worshiping and giving God glory in all that they say. They're celebrating the birth of Christ. And we see in their example that the truest response, the most correct and right response to the birth of Christ is that in themselves they resonate with the praise of God's glory because of this birth, because of Christmas Day. And the shepherds in their own way likewise. Verse 20, they return to their flocks, And in response to all that they had heard and seen, just as the angel had told them, they are glorifying praise God. So in themselves, they are resonating with the praise of God's glory because of the birth of God's Son. And this truly is the right and proper focus of how we should celebrate this great event. We should celebrate the glory of God and all that he has done and bringing his son into this world. So it is so right for us to praise and to give God glory for the way the angel brought the message, the way it inflicted awe and fear, and the right and proper response to the nature of the radiance of God's glory, to the fact that the recipients are shepherds, those who are living at the lowest strata of Jewish society, It's to the glory of God that he would give his message to such as these. A reminder that God has chosen the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It is right to give God glory for the message itself. That the prophesied and promised Messiah, the son of David, the Savior, has come. It's right to give God glory for the humility of the birth. That God would descend this low. One of the older, but perhaps loveliest of all the Advent and Christmas carols says this. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending, he of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, oh, that birth forever blessed when the Virgin, full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's Redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, so yes, Christ, the Son of God, reveals his sacred face. And he does so from an animal's feeding trough. And so we sing of the glory of, Of how Christ came into this world. When we sing. Away in a manger. No crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus. laid down his sweet head. Because we see the glory of God. And the humility. Of Christ's birth. We should praise God. Because. And give God glory. For the heavenly. Host itself that appears. We should. We should give God glory that it took a multitude of the heavenly host to praise and glorify God in this event in order to do justice to this event from a heavenly perspective. So another great Christmas hymn says, Rank on rank the host of heaven, spread its vanguard on the way. As the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. And then further, to glorify God for the birth of the Son because of the good news. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then a third hymn I like to quote from, That says, shall we still dread God's displeasure, who to save freely gave his most cherished treasure? To redeem us, he hath given his own son from the throne of his might in heaven. Hark, a voice from yonder manger, soft and sweet, doth entreat flee from woe and danger, brethren, from all ills that grieve you, you are freed. All you need, I will surely give you. So it doesn't matter what the world may vainly attempt to do to remove the true meaning of Christmas. Remember, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness not has not overcome it. The darkness will never overcome it. It will always be, in the most central fashion, our calling And the most certain path to enjoyment of Christmas, to celebrate this day as the birth of God's Son, which God Himself celebrated to His own glory. For the angel who announced the Savior's birth radiated the glory of God, and all of the providences of history have revealed the glory of God, and the voices of the heavenly host above and the voices of the shepherds below have resonated in response to the glory of God. And therefore, to celebrate this birth is to celebrate the glory of God. And as for that, we were created. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the story of Christmas. We thank you for this passage in Luke. And enable us to remember at all times during this season. It's to your glory. And that we would live to your glory. And we would think about all things to your glory. Because you celebrated the birth of your son by manifesting your glory. And may we also celebrate the birth of your son and give you glory. May this be our calling and our theme And the very thing that lifts us above the darkness that tries to overcome the light. Father, we thank you that the light of Christ has for 2,000 years shone into this world. And the darkness has not overcome it. May we live in the light of your Son, celebrating his birth. In his name we pray. Amen.